great to see you here this morning. I, I want to go to the book of Acts, chapter 1, and we're in a new series called The Big Idea. Have you ever had something like just dawn on you, like, oh, now I get it. You had that before? Okay. Oh, oh, now I get it. Like, um, like the termite that walks into a saloon and asks, is the bartender here? Yeah. Is the bartender here? Is the bartender here? Oh, 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 now I get it. Oh! The lights came on. <laughs> Some of you are still going, yeah, just go ahead and laugh like, oh yeah, I get it. And explain that to me later, will you? Some of you get it, but it's, it's still a little dim. The light's coming on, but just a little dim. And some of you are just really not sure how religious I am because I use the word saloon in church, right? <laughs> that would be, yeah, that's just who we are. Sometimes you, you get the big idea, and then it comes on like, oh, yeah, this makes perfect sense. And um, we are about six weeks away from Easter, and that's the, that's the time when we celebrate the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Now you say, why would you celebrate the death? Because I can't have a resurrection if I don't have a death. And if I don't have this death, I don't have payment for my sin. So even though I don't like that the Savior died, I am extremely forever grateful that he died for my sins, Corinthians says, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, proof that he died, that he rose again, uh, and that he was seen, proof that he rose. And so I, if I don't have that death, I don't have that resurrection, I don't have payment for sins. That's why that Friday is called Good Friday. It was a bad, bad day, but it was a great day for us because he paid for our sins. He who did not have sin took sin upon himself for us that we could have the righteousness of God. And so it's a wonderful thing. And we'll celebrate that in about half, half a dozen weeks. Now, what I want to do is I want us to go to the other side of the resurrection and then we're gonna, figure, we're gonna learn how did the disciples respond in light of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? What was it like for them and how did the light turn on for them? What was the big idea? Okay, you're in Acts chapter one. I'm gonna read a passage and then we've got to fly through this today because there's, just, there's so much good stuff. And by the way, if it's your habit, how many of you come like every third week? How many of you come once every fourth week? Okay, how many of you uh, never raise your hand no matter what I ask? <laughs> okay, thank you. You need to come every week because this is gonna be a, uh, a great, I think it's gonna be a life-changing series, not just for you, but for your friends who need Jesus, okay? For your friends who need Jesus. Acts chapter one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began. Stop right there. In my former book, who is this? Luke is writing. Luke is a, is a physician. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. There are four stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is a physician. His is the longest. We think his is the hardest scribbled. Have you ever read? That's his signature? Yes. That's her signature? Yes, she's a doctor. She's a doctor. He wrote the longest of the four stories, the most human, that would only stand to reason because he's a physician, the most empathetic, he had the most compassion, why? Because he's a physician, the most thorough, the most analytical, maybe it, it was Luke. And so now he's writing, saying in my former book, in my earlier book, now he's gonna write what happened right after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And he's writing to this guy whose name is Theophilus. I'm not sure that's his real name. Theo means God, Phyllis is love. This is a God lover. So he's, he's writing to a, and this may be a code name because he doesn't want him to give, be persecuted. So he says, I write to you in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. He had chosen, get this, he had chosen those apostles. Verse three, after this, after his suffering, that would be his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ. <clears throat> he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. There's no question about it. This wasn't just like oh, a mystical appearing and he's gone. No, he stuck around. He went fishing with them. He, they, they sat together. They talked together. They ate meals together. This was not a ghost. If this were a ghost, he would eat the food. It would drop to the floor. 
This was a real human person. He says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Here it is. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift the Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, and that was good. He baptized with water. But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. They gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What are they thinking about? They wanted their country back. We have a hostile takeover. Rome has come in and taken our taxes. They've taken over the roads. They take a cut of all the businesses. You talk about this kingdom, Jesus. Let's get it on. Let's do it. I'll be the mayor. You know, I'll take one town. He'll take another. She'll take another. We'll, we'll take back over. And they're saying, we want to take over. And he's going, hold on just a moment. And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times and the dates the Father sent in his own authority. But you will receive power. That's the authority that you need. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be power mongers? No. You'll be governors? No. You will be witnesses. You'll tell the story. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. After this, he said this. He had taken up to, the, uh, to their very eyes in a cloud that hid them from their sight. So as soon as he said this, he begins to ascend. It's like he's flying away and they can't, they can't stop it. These are the very last words of Jesus before he goes to the right hand of the Father. Keep reading. Verse 10. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men uh, dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee. Now if two men dressed in white just appeared, that'd be creepy, wouldn't it? Like, whoa, where'd you come from? These are probably angels. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? Don't just stand there. Do something. He's saying, what, what do you want us to do? He says, this same Jesus who's been taken into heaven will come back the same way you saw him go into heaven. He, in other words, he's going to come back. So get busy being my witnesses. I don't know what comes to mind when I say the word church. But this is the starting of the church, Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. You probably have a lot of ideas, um, and, and I have a few of my own. It's crazy how uh, our worship pastor, Ernest, how our concept of church is very similar, although we grew up hundreds of miles apart. He and I both grew up with bow ties. In fact, I was going to show you a picture of a bow tie, of me in my suit, my little clip on, my bow tie. Uh, but... Uh, we, we grew up with chicken dinners in the church basement and sing-alongs on Sunday nights. And there's just things, even though we were hundreds of miles apart from each other, there were some things that are very much the culture of what we grew up in as our own church. I could start a story and Ernest could finish it. That's how crazy the cultures were. So similar, although very, very different. Now, the experience you may have of church may be totally different yet. You may have gone to a church that kneels and stands and bows and, or that has to come up and down an aisle, or you may have gone to a church with people with, with robes or whatever that would be, or maybe your church was, you know, at the campsite. You didn't go at all, or a football field or a basketball stadium or whatever it was. You didn't go to church except at Easter. You waved at people and you went once a year or twice a year, or when grandma came to town. One Christmas Eve, <clears throat> we had a couple that used to come all the time, and then they got away from the habit of coming, and then they came back for Christmas Eve. And when they came back, they were back with her parents. And they looked at me like, please don't say anything. Just, just look us in the eye like we were here last week. <laughs> oh. And I said, hey, man, good to see you again. And... Uh, and I said, see you next week. You know, I'm going to see if he's going to lie to me. He goes, see you next week. Yeah, we'll, we'll be here. You know, it's like that commercial. You have potential. Right. <laughs> I have a lot of notes. I have to keep going. So laugh on your own time. I don't have time. <clears throat> Jesus started this movement called the church. It was called an assembly. It wasn't even called a church. It was just a group of people that met on a hillside. There were no buildings, no bands, no programs, no hierarchy, no denomination. Hallelujah. No staff. No. It was just a movement of people. And all of those people, all they had in common was that they had an encounter with Jesus. And the church that Jesus launched 
on the heels right after his resurrection. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to have power, and that power is going to make you a witness to what you know about Jesus. That's the job of the church. You get this? The job of the church is to keep that story of Jesus alive and to witness it, to tell the story. These gatherings are centered around one central theme, that a dead guy came back to life. That's crazy great news. That is crazy great news. You know, I, you could fly to the moon, you could fly around the world and fly to the moon, you come home and you meet your neighbor and you say, where you been? I just, I was, I was driving my lunar vehicle on the, the sea of tranquility on the moon. And the guy goes, yeah, but I got, uh, I got 10 bananas for a buck at the store. Whatever he says compared to what you say about the moon, it's the moon. These guys saw a dead guy rise from the dead, and, and, and they, they knew they, they could not be told down from that. They could not dispute it. They couldn't get away from it. And, and then the Holy Spirit indwelled them, and when the Holy Spirit indwelled them, then they went and told the story, and that is still how the church moves even today. See, Jesus was who he claimed he was, and, and they, they're beginning to realize this is who all along we're starting to put the pieces together. The puzzle's starting to make sense to us. And all of the energy and the dynamic of that faith movement stirs the world, and it stirs it generation after generation. And although it changes forms and it changes sizes and shapes, and even the movement of God shifts around the world, uh, it'll be hotter in some and cooler in some areas and then moving in some and growing in others and more stagnant in others. And then it will just shift again. Every generation has its own movement of, of what the church is doing, but it never seems to go away. And it's actively involved in humankind heart, reviving our hearts and changing us. Now, the word church is actually, the Greek word is the word ekklesia, ek out of, ekklesia, out of uh, uh, the gathering and what it ends up being is this or, or it ends up being um, transliterated the called out ones and that's a that's technically the right words uh, but what it what it in general means is that it's the assembly of people so the church is are are the people not the buildings the people and they come together, it's when they're called out, but then when they, they scatter, they're still the church, they're just the church in the community. Now, that church was full of people, some of whom were deeply committed to Jesus, some sort of committed to Jesus, some mm, curious, and some who really don't know yet, but they still show up to hear to see if this is gonna be something I'm going to follow. And it seemed that when you read the book of the Acts, it seemed like all the time when they would preach the good news in those church environments, People would come to personal faith. So that means they weren't of personal faith when they walked in. So this general idea of this assembly or this gathering, that's what you have in the early days of the church. And what they did know is this, that they were called out to a brand new kind of life, a whole different way of living. And so um, it's not unusual if you were to travel, even in the United States, within just our short amount of history, with maybe 300 years of history, you'll see churches called the assembly or or the gathering, or some churches will call themselves the worship centers, or they call themselves, this is our worship service. Others call it the gathering times, and because it's the church dispersed and the church gathered. It all makes biblical sense. It is a congregation. But over time, what would happen would be this. It didn't take long for Satan to get in and confuse it, confound it, dilute the power of this spirit-led, Jesus-believing kind of movement. It didn't take long at all. And what happened was this, he got it diverted, got it off message, and the way he got it off message was to create a hierarchy and power struggles and turf wars. Y'all have had this, right? How many of you have more than one children? Yeah, more than one child, right? You, you understand you're on a long trip and people, and you know, there's a line in the back of the car, and you're not to breathe on that side, right? It's just what children have, yeah. I grew up in a family and there were four of us kids and I got the hump back in the, it was before seat belts. I didn't even get a seat. I just got the hump. That's what I got. I kind of liked it because I liked riding backwards and seeing where we had been, you know. And, 
and then my parents moved up to a station wagon. We were living big, I'll just tell you. My parents were living big. We had a station wagon that had that fake wood siding. We're talking pretty groovy, okay? But there's turf wars. It happens among kids. It happens among adults as well. And it didn't take long before turf wars would develop. And by the year 300 AD, now at this point, some of you are going to get, the eyes are going to go in the back of your head. I'm just going to tell you, I, I went through, I don't really believe in purgatory, but I did go through it my freshman year in college, and it was called Western Civilization. That was the course. And if you have the course Western Civ, oh my gosh, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It was, it was every king and emperor of the Mediterranean Sea, and they all sounded the same to me. I was praying for a multiple choice final exam, just so I had a chance. Let me give to you the short, quick version. It goes like this. About 300 AD, there was a guy by the name of Constantine. He became emperor. And uh, his parents had been emperors. So he only stands, and he's, he's very conceited, narcissistic, typical leader of the Roman Empire, very self-centered. But he, he comes to faith in Jesus. He just says, you know, this faith is so good. I want everybody to have this faith. In fact, I just demand it. Boom, you got to have this faith. Everybody has to go to church. Okay, then. If you want a job, if you want to live, you don't want to go to prison, go to church. He moved the capital out of Rome to a town, we call it Istanbul. He, he changed it to Constantinople because he's, he's a conceited narcissist. Not all of Jesus showed up in his life. He, when you name the town after yourself, that's a conceited person. So he, he names the town Constantinople. It becomes the, kind of the crowning work of the Roman Empire, about 300 AD, um, close to Greece, on the shores of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, that emperor of Rome, uh, Constantine, he means well, but what he does is he forces people to go to church, and he makes a state-run church. Does that make sense? And it becomes what you would know, you would call a universal church, because it's, it's a church run by the government. So now it's going to be a governmentally controlled church where people are forced to go. They go, but they don't want to go. But you have to go, or you go to jail, or you get in trouble. By the way, some people are saying, I'm so glad I live in America. Trust me, we have our ugly stories too. You don't have to go very far back. I was just reading this last week about the Puritans who actually killed the Quakers in Massachusetts early on. If you go to the northern shore of Michigan, here's Michigan, right? Go up here to Mackinac Island. There was a law when you were at Mackinac Island in Mackinac on the northern shore of Michigan in colonial days, you went to church every day. You didn't go to church every day. You went to the stocks. They would put you in the stocks. I'm kind of liking that law, actually. I, no, not really. But isn't that crazy? That was a U.S. law in a territory of the U.S. So when you think, oh, well, we have our religious freedoms. We did. We have our own weird things, too, in history. So don't think that we're all that. We're just as weird as every other country that's come and gone. And we've tried to control the church, and you can't have a state-controlled church because then it won't be a movement of God and free of the Holy Spirit. It'll be state-run, just like every other government would be. And you need a place of government, but that's not the movement that God has for the church. His is a spirit-led movement that trusts in Jesus. So what happens is you end up with this universal church, which you would maybe even would call historically the Roman Catholic Church, and the word for Catholic, the historic word there is the word universal church. It's a state-run church. It's why in England you have the Church of England today. And that's why some of us in the room say, I don't like the hierarchy of churches. And the New Testament believers would go, I don't know what that means, because they didn't have that then. And we try at SBC not to have that. We don't want the hierarchy. Why? Because we don't want the control. We want this to be a spirit-led, Jesus-believing kind of movement. That's what the book of Acts talks about. So from that time on, the church was considered a place. It was no longer considered a people. From Constantine on, it became, the church became a building. And we lost much of the momentum. It had, it had rules. It, it, had, it had faith. But it, it had so many rules, the rules tended to overwhelm the faith movement. And government was so strong over those churches that they became power struggles. And then eventually paganism came into those churches. Uh, immoral controlling uh, politics. 
Um, in fact, if you were to go to South America today, if you're not part of a local church there that believes like the state, some of those countries, you can't get a job. That kind of power struggle still happens even today. And it lost sight that we believe, get this, that we believe in a guy who died and came back to life. If you go back to that very thing, you go, why would I want all the rest of this stuff? I worship a guy who was dead and he got back to life and that's worth believing in. That's at least worth studying, at least worth following. Well, Constantine went away after 300 AD, but by 500 AD, the church's light, that big idea, started to dim. And we went in history to an age called the Dark Ages, where the church was really underground. There was state-controlled church, but there wasn't a lot of, a lot of spirit-led, Bible-believing. There, weren't, there wasn't the freedom to preach the good news of Jesus. And uh, um, in the late 1400s, there's a guy who came on the scene from England. His name's William Tyndale. And William Tyndale lived into the 1500s and he was a scholar, and he was a biblical scholar, and he was a linguist. A linguist is a person who understands languages. And he had a propensity, a strength, in understanding uh, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Those are the three languages of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And he, he understood it well, and as he would read the scriptures, and then he would see what the church was doing, he would say, this is crazy. This is nuts. If people knew what the Bible actually said, they're going to church and people would, they would give birth to a baby and the baby gets sick and the priest would say, you put a hundred bucks in the plate and I'll pray for your baby. They were, they were charging people for favors. They were charging people to light candles or say prayer for the dead. And none of those things were in the Bible. None of that was in the scriptures. And Tyndall's saying, you're ripping people off. If people knew the truth, they would revolt against the church. And so what did he do? He started to translate the Bible into a language that the people knew. Well, you can imagine how the church liked that. Not at all. They went after him. He had to run for his life. He had to leave England and go to the mainland of Europe. He actually hid in, in Germany, but they put a bounty on his head. And in that bounty, they drug him back, and they hung him. They hung him. And then after he died, they took his dead body down, and then they burned his body in public. So when you hold the scriptures, know this. There are people who worked so hard for you to get an English Bible. And why, why in the world would he go to Germany? I'll tell you why he went. Because a few years earlier, there was a guy by the name of Gutenberg who had invented a press. Because all the scriptures they had were handwritten. And Gutenberg was doing this press, and it was, it was slow and laborious, but it was way faster than handwritten Bibles. And, and many scholars think he was trying to get as much distribution as he could, and sure enough, he did. Because by the time they captured William Tyndale, by the time they put him to death, there were enough copies of the scripture out that people began to go, we're not doing that anymore. We have seen the truth, and the truth has set us free. Another guy that you would know, his name's Martin Luther, was in the same zone in times period, and, and he, he could not get over that the just shall live by faith, not by faith and penance and faith and your money faith and all these other things no the just shall live romans chapter one the just shall live by faith he could not get over that and so he revolted and there was a bounty on his head as well you you uh when you when so when you say you know i i don't know if i want to go to church today know this there are people who brought us to church to our generation who gave their lives for it there are people, even you say, I, and I have a copy of the scripture in my hand, and I have a half a dozen copies in my office. I have three or four versions. I have a, a Greek interlinear. I don't, I don't even think about it. I think of the lives that were given just to have what we possess today. It is, I, I'm telling you folks, there, I, there are days I'm scared for the church today because we're so casual about what we have, and people 500 years ago would have loved to have had just two or three of your 66 books. Just two or three of them in their own language. And, and so for us just to read it every day, it's not a burden. It is a total, absolute privilege. Well, by the time uh, Tyndall's life was over, and, and um, the quote is on the screen, I defy the Pope and all his laws. 
if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who, who drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. <laughs> I, I kind of like his attitude. <laughs> you know, it's just like he's putting his finger in the Pope's chest, like, we'll see. Well, the Pope had the last laugh. He took his life, but actually Tyndall had the last laugh because as he headed to heaven, the people were set free by the truth. He accused the church of manipulating the scriptures, manipulating people. And, and, and I find it interesting, when he came across the word ecclesia, that word for church, he didn't use the old German term church, which meant a building. You know what he used? He used the word assembly and the word congregation, because it is the people. Well, these people were called out of darkness into this world of light, and we walk in the light. And what I find interesting is we read from Acts chapter 1 and then chapter 2. These people come from every walk of life, every language and every people group. And they had one simple message, and that message is that, they, that Jesus rose from the dead and that he can save, and that he wants you to be saved as well. And what I find interesting is this. These people didn't even have the same language or culture, music, food, family, or customs. All they had in common was Jesus. I hope you get this. This is a huge point. Because one day Jesus was asked by his disciples, what do people say about me? Jesus asked them. And they said, well, some say you're this and some say you're that. And he said, what do you think I am? Peter said, you're... You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're the Son of the living God. And he said, Peter, you're right. And it's upon that kind of truth, Peter, I'm going to build my, my church, my ecclesia, my call that ones, my movement of people. It's upon that kind of truth. And there's actually a play on words, too, because Peter actually is the word for little stone. But when Jesus uses it, he goes, and upon this rock, I will build that. So he moves him from being a pebble to being a boulder. And this is something that's not going to go away. And not even the gates of hell are even going to be able to stop it. So Jesus dies. He's buried. He's risen again. He's spent 40 days with them. And right before he goes back to heaven, he says, I want you to be witnesses. And I want you to tell your story. And, and, and I want you to tell your story and did you, did you get this? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Okay, that means nothing to us. Okay, so let me explain that. He says, when you say Jerusalem, okay, as people right around me. I'll tell them, I'll be a witness to my story. People right around me. Judea, that's eh, the suburbs. I don't know if I go there that often. Okay, we could do that. Okay, Samaria? Mm, no, we don't go there. Why? Because those people don't look like me. Those are half-breeds. Those are people who've intermingled in marriage or culture or food or music. They're different than me. I don't go to that side of the tracks. Okay? So now we're getting resistance. And now he's saying, and you're going to be a witness to me to the outermost parts of the earth as far as you can possibly go. So you need to go with people that you know and you like to people that you, mm, you don't really have much opinion about to people you do have an opinion about that you just don't trust to everyone all the way around the world. And he's saying, that's going to happen, Acts 1, and you don't need to wait for that except for the Holy Spirit. So right from day one, this church is not only local, it's also regional, it's also worldwide. It's the reason that we, we do world missions today. It's the reason that we work with the schools up the street. It's the reason we, we do things nationally uh, to help people come to Christ in different locales. Uh, it's the reason we do what we do, because we are to be witnesses of people all the way around the world. So this is the big idea. We are to witness this. We're to tell our story and, and make that message clear. So those disciples, Acts chapter 1, they hear Jesus and, and they, they wait. And it isn't long and before these two angels show up and say, why do you stand there gazing? The same Jesus who, who came, he's, he's going to come back the same way. So you need to be about his business. So they waited two weeks, and two weeks later, the Holy Spirit came one day when they were praying. 
they were having a Jewish festival called Pentecost. And um, people from maybe a, about a dozen different nations came to, to Israel at the time. And when, while they're praying together, the Holy Spirit comes and they begin to speak in other languages. This is the crazy part. Because these are Jews and these Jews now get together, but they're from different countries. So they're speaking different languages. So they really don't know each other. What do you do when you don't know the language of another person? Have you ever noticed how, what you do? I get louder. Do you? Anybody else? Hello! Like, they're not deaf. They don't know hello. And then I go, you know, I, I try to make some gesture that welcomes them. Right? You ever done this? And then I slow down. Do you do this? And then I ask, what do you know? And then and you try to find some kind of common denominator. You can imagine if there's 12 different languages happening and people are praying together. They're, they don't, they're not sure what's going on. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes, and people began to speak in different languages. And although I speak English, when it comes out of my mouth, it sounds German, and the German guy hears it and goes, oh my gosh, he's learned German in a minute. No, that has to be the work of God. And someone who's speaking Chinese hears it in Arabic, because there's... There's a, a person from the Middle East here. It was crazy great what was happening. So the scoffers go, those people are crazy because they didn't understand. And then they said, oh, they must be drunk. And he said, no, we're not drunk. It's early in the morning. We're not, we're not speaking sloppy. These are actual languages. These people understand each other. This is not drunkenness. It sounds like drunkenness to you because you don't know that language. Acts chapter 2, turn with me there. Verse 22. Peter stands up and he tells them, here's what's really going on. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. And, and what does he say? He doesn't say, he doesn't say, we got it going on and you don't. No, he goes right to the big idea. You get this? And you're going to find this in the book of Acts over and over again. He goes right to the big idea. Listen to this. He says, Jesus of Nazareth is a man accredited you got by miracles, but by God to you by miracles. In other words, he performed miracles. He didn't heal everybody. He, what did he do? He healed enough people for you to realize he is from God. Do you get this? So he didn't come just to heal people. He actually came to pay for our sins. But you would never believe him if you didn't think he had power. So he would heal some people. And so he's accredited to you by God, through these miracles, signs and wonders, which God did among you and through him, as you yourselves know. See, see, he's saying, you guys saw this. You know all about this. Verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. He's saying, you guys did this. You know exactly what happened. You were there. Nailing it to the cross. But what happened? Verse 24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. So he's not talking about something that happened like 100 years ago. No, this was like six or eight weeks earlier. And he's going, you guys know what's going on. These guys are not drunk like you would assume. They're actually speaking another language, and they understand each other now. That could only be a miracle of God. That's no different than when Jesus changed the water to wine, took the cripple by the pool, uh, helped the girl who they thought had died. He, he, he seemed to do those miracles. This is another one of those miracles. And why does he do that? So you will believe. because uh, Why did he have to do miracles? Because of our unbelief. That's why it was happening. So he's saying, you are witnesses to all this. And so the opening day of the church, this is Peter's first sermon. It's the first sermon of the church, of the assembly. And he starts out, he doesn't start out with, there's a termite going in a saloon. No. He stands up and he goes, very first words, Jesus of Nazareth. He goes right to the big idea. And he says, you crucified him. He is Savior. He is Lord. And so they go, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How do we respond to this? Keep reading verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made him, this is Jesus, whom you crucified. He is both Lord and, and Messiah. He's the anointed one. 
so that the people, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They knew that Peter and the apostles, they said, what are we going to do? We don't know what to do with the information you're giving us. So Peter said, you repent, get baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are, because kids didn't count back then. He goes, your kids could believe this for children and all who are far off. In other words, people who are way different from you, for all of whom he is Lord over all, and God and God will put his call, he'll put his stamp on them. In other words, there's no difference between Jew or Greek, the New Testament would go on to say. And I need to stop right here because some would say right here, well, oh, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Because it seems to state that. But he's saying the word for can be translated a couple different ways. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the forgiveness. In other words, because you are forgiven or in order that you be forgiven. It's two different ways you use the word for. I believe it's because you are forgiven. And the reason is because later they'll talk about being saved. They'll talk about you are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. You are saved by grace through faith. Now, I want to say too, if you're a follower in Jesus, you trust him, you do need to get baptized. Why is that? Because Jesus said you should. Number one, it's a statement of obedience. Number two, it helps you identify with the other believers in Christ. So if you are not, if you're not baptized as a believer, I encourage you to show up in the next couple Sundays. At the end of service, we'll have information at the front for you to grab that material and get ready to be baptized. And you go public with your faith. You're saying, well, I, I don't want to do it yet. I'm 50. I'm, I, it's, it, I don't, I don't want to do it. Okay. And you'll do it five years from now. And then you'll be 55. Yeah. Or you'll be 60 or 65. And either way, there'll be a day that you decide, oh, it's time for me to follow Jesus. I would do it sooner than later. Sooner than later. You have children that are trusting Jesus. It's time to let them take those steps of obedience. Talk with them at home. Get them ready. Make sure they understand what they're, what they're uh, doing because they need to follow the Lord in obedience to what Jesus said. If you're not sure about that, read Matthew 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. So he says, you, you, get, you get to this faith and you go public with that faith in baptism. And it's for you who are close to the Lord, for those of you who are far away. It's for the old, it's for the young, it's for everybody. And you know what happened? People believed the message, and that day, get this, Acts 2 says, 3,000 people came to Christ. 3,000 people. Now, I've baptized a lot of people in my life, but I'm just thinking, how sore would my arm be? I mean, I'd I'd be wrapped in ice for a long time, happily. But I think, can I go a few this way now? I'm just thinking, think of the waters and the baptisms and the renewed kind of restored relationships, the homes that turn to Jesus together. And and it is a big opening day and 3,000 believe and they're baptized. And this, this assembly from day one is a big assembly. Get this. Some of you are saying, you know, I, I don't like a big church. Then you, you may not like heaven. Or I like, I like church, but I like it to all look like me. Then you may not like heaven. Because on that day, there were, there were a dozen different people groups there, different languages. And right from opening day, the church was multiracial. It was multicultural. Right from opening day, it was generational. Children came to personal faith. And older people came to personal faith. And moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas came to personal faith. And they didn't just stop at faith. Verse 42 goes on to say, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the word for doctrine, and to fellowship, and to breaking of bread, and to prayer. You know what? They, They didn't just get in the door to go to heaven. No, they grew their roots deeply. We'll talk about this in the weeks ahead. And we coined those terms around here as worship, connect, grow, serve, share. You can almost see them from Acts chapter 2 already, verse 42. And they all had one common denominator. A dead guy rose from the grave, and we can't get over it. It's Jesus. We believe in Jesus. We believe that he paid for our sins. And so when they would go to the assembly, when they would get together, 
they just got together and talked about what they knew about Jesus. And, and when they would get together, you know what? We, today, here's one of my fears of the church today, is that we're so consumer-oriented that you say, well, I'll go to church, but I want to go to church that's my style. And I, I believe you. You ought to go to church that's your style. And my, you know what my style is? Jesus. That's my style. So I could go to a church that's got old hymns. I could go to a church that has an organ and piano or a big band. I don't care. doesn't matter. Or all stringed instruments or no instruments at all. I'll go. doesn't matter to me. As long as they teach Jesus and they love Jesus, that's my kind of church. And, and that's the biblical model of the church. What we do now is we say, well, I'm not going to go if, if, and then we put these roadblocks up. It's just... It, it's not long enough or the service is too long or I, or I can't, I, I want certain tradition or I want certain lights or certain music or certain dress. And I, I, I'm sorry, but that's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. So if, if that's not enough to celebrate, that's not enough to have together, then, then I, I have to wonder, is this, do you really get what Jesus did upon the cross? These are believers who gathered with nothing else in common except that Jesus died for them. And so don't let other people pollute it for you. Don't let other people get you off message. You be passionate about my neighbor needs Jesus. My coworkers need Jesus. It's not a building. It's not a location. They need Jesus. And, and that's why, you know why I love here at SPC? I love this. And we don't tell you to do this, but I'll, I'll take the testimony of somebody. And it could be, it could be a 55-year-old guy who is following Jesus and I'm baptizing him. It could be an eight-year-old uh, third grader. And I'll ask, are you trusting Jesus? And give me your favorite verse or what do you like about um, coming to SBC and being a part of this family? And they'll tell us and I'll, I'll baptize them. Matthew 28, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know what, when I pull them out of the water, I don't have to say to you, you just clap, you cheer, you jeer, you chant. We, we just... We love it with every single baptism. It's that way. And we don't have to tell you that. We don't, it, it seems like that's just kind of spontaneous. Yeah. And that, it's that same way when, when you gather in homes and your small group, I, I saw a small group who was doing service project. We cheer that on. We cheer each other on. This is the whole reason when we help children or we serve underprivileged. In a few weeks, we'll serve the homeless again. We do that, and people are glad to be here and to serve. Why? Because a dead man rose from the grave, and if he's more powerful than death, he can get us over any issues that we have. You see, the church is a movement. It's not a building. It's not an organization. It's not a hierarchy. It's not a denomination. The church is a movement, an extraordinary movement with extraordinary momentum, and all of that centers on the person and on the work of Jesus. We just sang it a little bit ago. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of every praise we could ever bring. So the chorus ends, so show me who you are. Don't you love this song? And fill me with your heart. Fill me with your heart. And lead me in your love to those around. Why? Because they need what we have. They just need it. And I, don't, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go to heaven alone. I want to go to heaven with a lot of friends. And so don't just, don't just stand there. Remember what the angel said, Acts 1? Why do you guys stand here? This same Jesus who came, he's going to come back. He'll be asking the question, did you do what I asked? So tell someone your story. And, and don't assume because they attend church that they get the story. Don't assume that. And if you read the book of Acts, you find people coming to faith at every assembly time. That means people who gather are not necessarily believers. And I'll tell you, I've gone to the assembly, to the church service, and my faith has been increased. Has it yours? You had moments like that? Or like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And the lights kick on. So there's, there's steps of faith and steps of obedience. It doesn't end with that, does it? So tell your story and don't assume the people around you have a story and don't let other people get, off, get you off your message. Always remember, this is what happened at 300 AD and it, 
and it destroyed the church in 400, 500, 600, 700 AD. The church had to go underground because it was so polluted. So don't let people get you distracted with anything else because it doesn't matter. He says, I deliver to you first of all what is of first importance that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he was seen. All right, I'm done. I'm gonna tell you a story and then we're gonna quit. So you can close your Bible. Um, and by the way, small group leaders, we have some notes coming out to you. If you want to chase this a little more this week, we've got some notes that are going to come out today for you this week. And if you're not in a group but you'd like the notes, you email us at the office, we'll, we'll ship you the notes. Um, before I pray, I just want to, I, I want to do a suppose for a moment. You ready? Suppose we decide we're going to go. Uh, Thanksgiving's coming, and uh, this fall at Thanksgiving, we decide we're going to do Thanksgiving on Tuesday night because on Wednesday we're going to pack and we're going to a bus. We're all going to meet in the parking lot here. We're going to ride the bus to New York City because we're going to go to the parade. Sound like fun? Yeah. Sounds like fun from a distance. But yeah. So we decide we're going to we're gonna go. So we get all, we get all packed and, and everybody arrives. We filled a lot with cars we all we're all bundled up we have all our stuff we have our thermos with coffee and some sandwiches we're gonna go to the parade in new york city so the buses pull in we all get up on the buses and we ride the buses right up to new york city they throw us out at the corner they say the, the parade's like two blocks away and we we tell everybody okay there's like a million people here so we might lose each other yeah pretty high chance so what we want to do is we want to just so come back here tonight after the parade. This is the corner we're going to come to. And everybody takes a picture of the corner so we all know this is where we're going to come back to. So then we head towards the parade and sure enough, 10, 10 people head that way towards the front of the parade where it's starting. And we just like, okay, see ya, goodbye. We, you know, the crowd's getting thick and there's like a wave of people. And, and those people, what they get to see is they're at the start of the parade. You know how the balloons are going up and they're letting the ropes out and there's like this 190-pound guy who's holding the rope and he's like he's off the ground and so they start throwing sandbags in the guy's pants to get him on the ground and he's going to walk the parade with these, we think they're, we think they're parachute pants. No, these are sandbag pants. You know, he's, he's trying to stay on the ground. They're trying to get the balloons up and, and you're enjoying the parade as it starts. And then there's another section of people that that watch the parade, but they're like three or four blocks up and they're listening to the band, but the band's just getting started and it's cold and those mouthpieces are still cold, so it's not all the way in tune quite yet. We're hoping it warms up by the time they get to the main stand, if you know what I mean. But they're, they're doing pretty well. And then there's three or four of you who decided you rip off what you have and you, you actually have underneath your outer clothing, underneath there, you actually have band uniforms and you're going to sneak into a band because you want to see the parade from where it's happening. And you, you're going to relive high school before you get arrested. And so some of you jump into that line and you get into the band and you see the, you see the parade from inside the parade. And others are at the grandstand. You know where the grandstand is, where the, the evaluators are and the major TV coverage and others are further down where people are getting hot coffee and donuts at the end of the parade and they're trying to pull these, these big balloons back in. And so there's 10 or 20 people down at that end of the parade. That night, we all meet back at the corner where we're supposed to meet to get back on the bus. All of us have been to the parade, right? We've all enjoyed the parade. Oh, oh there were half a dozen of you who, who used to live in New York City and you know a guy who has a building with some exterior stairs and you hop the fire escape up those stairs and you watched the parade from a rooftop. How cool is that? Huh? So that night you get back, we get on the bus and everybody tells their story about the parade. No two stories are the same, right? Because every angle is different. But everybody got to see the parade. Let me tell you this. There's a few hundred people here today. 
Let's suppose, and I don't know if this is true, let's suppose everybody in the room has a story of how we came to Christ. That's yours. It's your angle on the parade. It's not wrong. It's just a different angle. Some of you were over here when you came to Christ, and some were here, and some were up there, and some were in the middle of the parade. And some of you came to Christ later, right? It's all your story. There's no right or wrong story. All of them are witnesses of the parade. They're all exactly right because they're your story. Don't let anybody take you away from that. And don't, don't somehow stifle that story because your story isn't like theirs. No. Why do you stand here gazing, the angels ask. This same Jesus who came, he rose, he went to heaven, he's going to come back. So in the meantime, by the way, since you're a believer in Jesus and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you be the witness of what you experienced in your faith. Tell your story. Now, maybe as simple as, uh, thank God for today. Maybe one sentence to someone. Or, how could I pray for you? Maybe a question. Or it may just be a praising moment. It may be a moment where you actually give a paragraph. Those don't come often. And rarely is it a time when you're sitting in a restaurant, I've done this, where I actually write down the whole gospel on a napkin. It does happen, not very often, but it does. But you be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that you have within you. Do that with meekness and fear, but don't ever give up on your story. Let's bow together for prayer. Would you stand with me as we pray? God, what an opening day that was, the first day for the church. Monster day, huge day. Uh, enlightening to our eyes and our hearts. And so for that, Lord, we say thank you for preserving your word. And we don't want to stop it with just that opening day. We want the day to continue. So our prayer now is, Lord, what's... What's the message for us? What, will we, what story will we tell? Um, would you pray just right where you're standing, God, give me the opportunity this week to be the witness for you. And it may be in serving, and it, it may be in a, a statement. It may be an offering to pray. It may be in a full gospel presentation. We, we don't know. But give me the opportunity, Lord, and may I be a witness for you. Uh, I thank you for my, my friends today. Bless and keep them, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.